for those looking to change the world through education. Each week we bring you a new idea, however big and bold it is, that has the potential to disrupt, upheave, or remix education. Now here's your host and my dad, Ryan Scott. Hello, all of my friends out there in the edgesphere. Welcome back to another episode of the Big Ed Idea Podcast. Um, as you know, I am Ryan Scott, and uh, it is another wonderful day to be recording a podcast. Actually, I'm going to tell you what, I, uh, I am so excited about this next guest that I didn't even let a severe thunderstorm warning hamper um, the fact that this just had to get done. So to all my listeners out there, if uh, for some reason uh, my house gets taken down by a thunderstorm, listen, we're just going to keep on rolling because that's just how um, how much I'm into this next, uh, dude. So, um, I'll be, I'll be honest, you know, through, through all of this COVID madness, one thing I've really learned this year is that if you have an idea, just jump into it, just move forward and, uh, just take that first step. And so I was really hesitant. I'm going to be honest. Um, like some of you guys, I'm sure, um, imposter syndrome is, is a real thing. And so I was really nervous about reaching out to this guy. I was like, no way will this guy sit on my little bitty podcast. Um, but I shot him an email and, uh, he responded the very next day. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so I am super excited to introduce, um, to, um, welcome commissioner, Dr. Jason Glass, who is the current Commissioner of Education in Kentucky um, to the Big Ed Idea podcast. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks, Ryan. I'm thrilled to be here and and honored that you uh, reached out. So I was I was delighted to get your invitation and glad to do it. And I'm telling you, um, this is number so so this episode when it drops will be number 19. And no way did I ever think that by number 19 i would i would be having a chance to talk to a guy that literally um like is at the top of the education game in kentucky and uh just being able to just chew the fat on you know what our ideas behind education is it's just it's so cool to me and it's so um such a great opportunity and and i know i told you before i hit the record button but uh once again man thank you so much yeah, you're welcome. I, you know, I, I really am sort of a um, policy wonk junkie. And so I love talking about this stuff. I especially love talking about it with people that are uh, doing it every day. They're out, out in the garden doing the work uh, and, and experiencing it firsthand. So it helps keep my perspective real and helps me make good decisions um, at the state level and, and, uh, and, with, and with policy if I'm informed by people that are, that are doing the work. So it, this is great for me too. Thank you. Yeah, no, and 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 I'll and I'll be honest. You know uh, what I really what I really like about you. Um, first impressions to me are a big thing, and and what I can tell is that you're not a politician. Um, I can tell that you are an educator that just happened to land in a seat of policy, uh, which are two vastly different things, and and so that is just really cool to me. And and to me, um, I just yeah, that's just awesome. I love it. Um, I can tell that you were honest and that you were real and um, decisions that you're making for the kids in Kentucky comes from your heart and um, probably not just from an interest group. So thank you very yeah. much. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I grew up in Kentucky, so this is home for me and it's an incredible honor to come back to Kentucky and get to serve in this role. And my parents were both educators and my uh, I, I, I grew up around schools. My sister is still a teacher. My brother works for Kentucky Educational Television. I married a teacher. So we, this is definitely our, our family business and, and what we do. And um, I, I think I, I, you're right. I, I do try to see uh, the, the work from what's best for uh, kids and, and students. And I, I have two kids that are uh, Kentucky uh, public education students myself. So I, I um, you know, make decisions that, that impact them as well. Uh, it's, I wish it was completely educational uh, thinking was driving all the decisions. Sure. This sure. is a political job. The commissioner's role is political. So I'm not a politician, but you definitely have to have that lens and think politically and see interests and, uh, ha and understand partisanship and understand authority and power and 
um, and everything that comes with with working in the political realm. But it's it's one of the lenses you drop on to make decisions. It's not the only lens. If it if it became the only lens you saw things through was politics, then I think I think you'd easily be led into corruption and power games and stuff like that. Um, but as long as the the first lens we drop on is is one of what's in the best interest of kids, what's in the long term best interest of uh, of our teachers and our education system, uh, that leads you to make good decisions. Absolutely. And, and I think if you keep all that at the forefront, um, it gets done because uh, change change needs to be sustainable. And uh, what I keep seeing is just the seesaw back and forth because politics have uh, kind of divided and stuff. But I think education is a currency that we can all agree on. Um, and, you know, I say it all the time, education is not a competitive sport. Um, so really, um, we should all be working together. And so I just appreciate that. Um, before we get started a little bit more, I want to make sure I introduce you and I want all of our listeners to know a little bit more about you. Um, so you are a native of Brandenburg, Kentucky, and you are a third generation Kentucky educator, as you alluded to. So evidently education is in your blood. Um, you have been the commissioner of ed since September of 2020. Um, but before that you were in Colorado as the superintendent and chief learner of Jeffco public schools. Um, and you were doing that since 2017. Um, and though I know you have that, you know, huge title, I would say this next is probably your most important title and that's a husband and a dad. Um, cause I, I can definitely, I, de I definitely see that through your social media presence. Um, so that's always something that's wonderful to see. Um, we're going to just go ahead and jump in um, with the question that I like to lead with because I'm very intrigued um, by people and how they got into education. Um, for my first time listeners, I had a very, very untraditional um, way of getting into education. Did not graduate till I was 27. Um, quite honestly, if it had not been for KCTCS, the uh, Community College System of Kentucky, I literally don't know where I'd be right now, probably not in a good place. Um, but at the age of 27, I found my passion. Um, I tell people, and this is not a joke, I found education because it offered the summers off. Um, and the reason I did that, and the reason I say that is because I had become a dad very early in life at 22, unexpectedly, and um, really with no direction and no aims and uh, my mom was an educator and I was a soccer coach at the time. So I knew I liked kids, um, but I knew that education was an amazing family um, job because you could literally change the world for your kids while you worked with other kids. Um, so that's why I fell into it. But I'm really interested and I know the folks out there are really interested in what led you into education. Well, I grew up around schools. Um, my dad was the uh, assistant principal and he taught science and he coached everything uh, you could coach at, at Meade County High School and, and sometimes at the at the middle school or junior high too. Um, so I you know some of my first memories were running around the high school running around the football field uh, playing under the bleachers I mean that was that was our where I spent a heck of a lot of time was around schools or, or um, going to school with my mom and, and being around her classroom while she planned and got ready and, and met with parents and, and other teachers. So this was my upbringing was around school. So it, it really gave me a good appreciation for um, the, the, uh, the connection that schools and the community have. Um, and how they rely on each Absolutely. other. Absolutely. Brandenburg was a great example of that. Just a great public school system, great community. Uh, community there is super supportive of the school system, and the school system does a lot for the community. So uh, they take care of each other, and it was it was just a great experience growing up there. Um, I, uh, I I went to uh, college at UK, uh, and I my undergrad is in political science, um, and I was always really interested in politics and policy and kind of how government worked. Um, and uh, so I, I graduated uh, with a political science degree. I went through the master's with initial certification program at UK, the MIC program, uh, where if, you're, if you don't have a teaching degree, then you go into this program and you, sure. you do your uh, pedagogical work and then uh, clinical work all kind of in about a year and a half period. Uh, and then you emerge with a master's degree and your certification. So I, I completed that at UK, great experience, fantastic 
uh, hands-on. I mean, it was, it was, we would be learning theoretical concepts one day and the next you'd be out in classrooms applying it. Excellent. And yeah, having great. somebody there to support you. Um, and then I started teaching in Hazard, uh, independent system in Eastern Kentucky. Oh, yeah. I, uh, taught world history and, and geography and, uh, coached football and track there. Love that experience, but I really still loved, uh, the, the policy aspect. So, um, back to UK, I got a, I got another uh, master's degree in uh, political science with a, uh, with a focus on um, uh, politics in the media and uh, state government and quantitative meth methods. So uh, then I, I landed a job out in Colorado working for the State Department of Education there, um, mostly in uh, special education, but some in assessment and uh, program evaluation. And so, I, you know, the, the, my whole career really has been sort of walking this line between a real, a policy oriented role and an education oriented role. So I've had uh, working at the state department, working at district uh, level positions, working in nonprofits, doing consulting, uh, being, being a, I was the state chief in Iowa um, uh, for three years. And then I was, I've been a superintendent for seven years. And so you, in all of those roles, you really have got to understand education and, and the experience of education uh, from the student level and the teacher level and how it works in schools and be able to translate that to, all right, here and here are the policies uh, or the configuration that needs to happen from a political or a policy perspective so that um, good things can happen for kids. So it's it's really, I think my, I would sum up my, my career and experiences is trying to find that balance between those two things I've really enjoyed. Yeah, absolutely. So um, essentially, um, you were an educator and now you're an advocator. Um, so, you know, that is that is that <laughs> yeah. is that is tremendous. Um, you you talked a little bit about growing up and you remember those early memories with your dad. Um, I had the extreme privilege of being elementary principal um, at Morganfield Elementary with, for two years. And my let's see, now she's nine. She was a kindergartner in first grade and that was the best experience of my life. Um, a 20 minute drive every morning, every afternoon, and we got to spend it together. And, you know, um, it was so cool. And we still talk about it to this day. And um, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. And and my mom was also an educator. She was a social worker in Indiana, but but uh, it kind of the same experiences. And uh, one thing I'm really big on is that we don't really remember a lot of the things we've learned in the school, but we learned the way it made us feel. And I know my earliest memories, um, school was a really great memory. And so in my line of work and where I'm at, that's kind of what we're trying to replicate and what I'm trying to replicate. So, um, all right, my friend, we are going to jump into the section that I call two for two. Um, it is my way of modeling connections before content. Um, just that idea that in, in order to really uh, make any type of change or really deliver any type of content. You got to know your students. You got to know your kids. You got to know your audience. Um, and so I'm going to ask you two questions that have literally nothing to do with education. Um, and then you get to turn around and ask me the same. Okay, I'm ready. All right, man. Now, I have a tendency to get really deep. So I apologize um, right off the bat. Um, if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? So yeah, I'm not I'm not starting small. <laughs> if I could change one thing about the world, uh, it would be that we we would figure out a way um, to. Uh, I think there are enough resources in terms of food and energy, and um, uh, access to money and access to clean water and healthcare and transportation and everything. I think there's enough resources on this planet for everybody uh, to live happily. And so, what I what I if I could change the world, I would I would say that we would figure out how everybody could get what they need. Oh, absolutely. That's and that's that's exactly. Uh, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, of poverty and the fight against poverty and um, just the simple fact that you know I I know. For the most part, state of Kentucky, kindergartners coming in, their Brigantz scores about a 50%. And that is, in my opinion, directly correlated to the 20% uh, of kids that we have living in poverty. And so I'm a firm believer that in order to really see sustainable change in the education system, we got to do something about our, maybe not, 
maybe not could go as far as our economic system, but we, like you said, there's got to be a way. Um, you know, I see it at the high school level. I see 17 year old kids working 50 hours a week so they can provide for their mom and dad. Um, there's got to be a way that we can we can do that, and and hopefully some hopefully in my lifetime we'll be able to figure it out. Um, my next one. Uh, what made you laugh today? Well, I I spent a part of the day uh, with a group called the Commonwealth Education Continuum, and it's something that um, Aaron uh, Thompson, uh, the president of the Council of Post-Secondary Education, put together uh, along with the lieutenant governor and I. And, um, and we were talking today about um, dual credit opportunities at high school. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think there were a bunch of opportunities, a bunch of times during that meeting that we were cracking up and, you know, <laughs> it was, it's a, it's a, um, it's a pretty high powered, high flying group of people. Uh, and Aaron Thompson uh, designed it that way. He thought about who are the key players in, in the state that need to be involved in this, but you know, they're really good people uh, and all sorts of political uh, colors and stripes and people from different backgrounds from early childhood to, um, to college and everybody just working together and it, it felt good and uh, we were glad to see each other even though it was over uh, over zoom but uh, I laughed several times in that meeting just at, at uh, things people were saying as we were trying to figure it out so it, it just felt good to be working together yeah I, I, I get it when I uh, taught kindergarten my kids we, we'd always say you're not learning unless you're having fun um, so I would say you you've learned a lot today um, today what made me laugh um, you know, I'm at the high school level. And so our freshmen literally have never seen my face. Um, and it was so funny. Um, today, I walked into a US history class just to talk with my kids and just to, to cut up with them and see what they were doing. And um, I was talking to them and they couldn't hear me. Well, I, so I pulled my mask down so they could hear me for a second. And they go, what, Mr. Scott, you have a beard? And I was like, yeah, I've had a beard for a while. And like one of the sophomores and juniors spoke up, they go, yeah, uh, Mr. Scott grows a beard every winter and shaves it every spring. Where have you been? And the, the freshman's like, I've never been here. So it was just a really cool uh, moment of levity. Um, I don't know. I love I love the high school level for those reasons. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great connection. Yeah. All right, my friend, what questions um, do you have for me? Yeah, well, I, I have a, a psycho important psycho oh, analysis no. question. No, okay, for you. don't hold this so against this me. Is, this is vetted against, you know, several professional uh, psychologists have have yeah. trained me on how to ask this question and analyze uh -oh. the results. So, uh -oh. uh, you're on a desert island. You only have three albums. What are they? Woo. Okay, so you're saying music albums, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, first is the White Album, absolutely by the Beatles. Um, secondly, okay, um, you're going to laugh at me, but it's probably, um, Notorious B.I.G., <laughs> um, his first nice. album, um, I can't remember, uh, I can't remember what it is, um, and then my third one. Oh, okay. That's easy. So, uh, there's a musician I'm really into right now, Leon Bridges. He's got a lot of Motown. Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. My, hey, my great, musical, great mix. Yeah. Uh, my musical interests really run the gamut. Um, I was, uh, I, I grew up playing piano and then I was in the band and I, um, so I played the trumpet. Um, I, I, right now I play the banjo. I played the drums in a punk band for a while when I was, in my wandering stage. Um, but music has always been a constant. So yeah, definitely those. Three. Yeah. Nice. No, I mean, and, and, uh, your, your choice of the white album right off the, out of the gate told me that cause it's super diverse, like every kind of music in, under the sun, uh, except maybe, uh, something that sounds like notorious BIG because it didn't <laughs> exist in 1970 yeah. when they recorded yeah. that, uh, is, is on there. So it's a, it's a super diverse album. And then your other two choices really rounded out, right? Cause, uh, uh, the, the Beatles, uh, you know, a lot of the sort of, um, soul or, yeah. uh, heavy beats that you Absolutely. hear and, um, uh, Motown feel or in rap music are not on that. So it really round, rounds it out. Well, yeah. 
So you just need a, you know, you need a country album and you got, you pretty much run the chorus. I think. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. I used to like country. I'm more of a bluegrass. I'm more of like a that folksy. Counts, yeah. yeah. You like Avid Brothers, Woods Brothers. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Authentic stuff. Right. Yeah. I know right. What you mean. Right. Yeah. yeah. So my, my last question for you then is uh, um, it's maybe it's cheating. It's a two-parter. Or it's, <laughs> no, it's two not op- cheating. Two options. Two options. So you can you can give you you could give everybody in the world one thing, or you could take something away from everybody in the world. Ooh. What would choose one or the other? What would it be? Okay, that's easy. Hope. You would give everyone hope. Okay, and the reason I say that, um, I actually just wrote um, a blog post that's going to be posted on TeachBetter.com, um, beginning of April on this other epidemic that we don't talk about and that's learned helplessness um the fact that our kids are literally from k through 12 are suffering from learned helplessness um the fact that i feel like um there is a even worse epidemic within our um, special populations especially our students with ieps with just that learned helplessness um i have this idea of when i get my doctorate um, that kind of goes around a scores, but there's gotta be a way to measure a kid's hope or resiliency. And if you can measure it, then schools can do something to increase it. And if you can do something to increase it, then you're increasing kids motivation. You're increasing their engagement. You're increasing their academics. Um, but it all comes down to the lack of hopelessness, um, at least, at least I definitely see it within our children of poverty, but I think it's probably across the gamut. Yeah, well, I think um, uh, there's some Gallup measures of hope and engagement uh, that are out there. So you may want to check, the, check those out. And there are some really fascinating correlations that Gallup's done with, um, uh, with hope, engagement, and well-being and future. So there was one study, I think it was around 2012, that came out where um, Gallup found a, be- a, a stronger correlation between their measure of, of hope than, uh, and college completion than the ACT. Yeah. Yeah, so, I have um, seen that uh, one. I'm probably butchering the, the research, but it's, it's, uh, you know, that's the story, is that a student that is uh, hopeful about the future, uh, that looks into the future and believes like the, uh, tomorrow's going to be better, the next, yeah. the next year is going to be better, uh, they have they have a better chance of uh, completing college that, or the, or it's a, t- a better correlation than students that perform better on on the ACT because a kid that may uh, on the ACT they may they may have the uh, content knowledge and academic skills to get through college but there's a whole lot more that goes into that whether or not you complete or not um, in including you know what kinds of supports are there what motivation is there what happens to you in your life like there's a lot that lot that can stand in your way, even if you've got the, the resources and the, and the academic skills to do. Yeah, one thing, um, one of my big ideas is that I, I wish we could almost, I don't know if, if stratify or diversify is the right, right word, but I really wish elementary schools could be bigger in the big business of the psychology behind education. You know, like, like we had essential standards for building hope and essential standards for um, like, you know, identifying the main, main idea and cause and effect and all that stuff. Yes, that's important. Um, but when you have kids coming into kindergarten um, with a social, social or emotional intelligence level of a two or three-year-old, um, to me, there's no business starting any of that stuff until you get those kids kind of on the same psychological playing field, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, man. Um, so, okay, now that you know me a little bit more and you psychoanalyzed me and you haven't like hit the X button and kicked me out of here, um, you haven't reported me to EPSB yet because of that psychoanalysis, um, it tells me you are ready to jump into the meat of the episode. Um, okay, let's do it. Yeah, so the stated purpose of the Big Ed Idea podcast is to connect the vision of one with the passions of another. Um, Simon Sinek says it really well. He says, you know, not everybody has to have a vision, 
Um, sometimes it takes one person's vision and just connect with somebody else's passion. And then together, um, that's kind of how you make the uh, awesomeness. So uh, the first thing we always want to start with is kind of the why. So like the problem um, of what your idea hopes to solve. So what is that problem, my friend? Yeah, well, uh, the, the, the problem that I, I see is that uh, we, have, um, we have an education system that is largely disconnected from the kinds of skills that students need when they leave our schools to be prepared for life and work. I'm raising the um, roof. And, and, and growing up to be well-adjusted, engaged, happy adults. Um, so, and our students know this, our employers know this, largely educators know this, but we just keep lining it up and doing it uh, largely the same way again and again. Uh, and, and, you know, we measure uh, and evaluate our schools based on um, basic content uh, information, uh, largely in math and science. Uh, there's some uh, attempts or efforts to get at some critical thinking and some synthesis. So I, I, would, I would say not all of our sure. measures are uh, just content measures. Like there are, some, there, there, and we've come a long way in, tr in trying to think about how we can measure some of these deeper concepts, but um, uh, we, we know that, you know, to be successful, um, you're gonna need perseverance, you're gonna need collaboration, you're gonna need creativity, um, you're gonna need analysis, critical thinking, like there's a whole set of skills that we don't uh, really evaluate, don't have a system uh, to develop or cultivate those in our young people. Um, and but as the world continues to evolve faster and faster, um, content knowledge is really easy to acquire. Basic analytic um, supports are really easy. Yeah, easier to get all the time because the machines are getting smarter. That's right. Uh, so what, uh, what I think we have to start working on is those things that are uniquely human, uh, the, the creativity, the complex reasoning and problem solving, the ability to look far into the future and imagine what could be or what will be. Um, that's, those are the kinds of things that I, I want our kids uh, working on. So that's the big problem. How do you change an education system that largely has been based on uh, content acquisition and um, uh, keeping kids in, in a building and shifting that into a system that prepares kids for a, a complex life and work in a in a world that's just accelerating every day. And I've got to tell you, um, I'm going to give you a big amen on that one. Um, I've got goosebumps <laughs> on my arms because what you're saying eerily eerily sounds like one of my favorite authors, Ted Dintersmith, likes to talk about. Sure. Um, right. Yeah. I've read know. his stuff. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, the book. Yeah. What, what school could be oh. a fantastic piece. Yeah. Um, and we need more people to read that. Uh, and Dinter Smith has come around too. You know, he was a big school choice advocate. We got a charter school stuff and that's the answer uh, and came around on that. And cause I think he visited a lot of charter schools that were great. And he yeah. visited a lot of them that weren't. Sure. Um, so, you know, you get you get some variability in that. It's a mixed bag. And, and he really came around, this, uh, I think, uh, thinking and believing that the experience of the student is what uh, has to change in school. And I think that's right on. Yeah, I, I completely agree. What you're alluding to are those five C's that literally the workforce has been telling us um, are 21st century skills for literally 21 years now. Um, and I, I, I think you're right. We have made some gains. We have made some, um, attempts at, you know, putting those pieces into the puzzle. Um, but there, are, there have been things that have kind of hampered us from doing so. Um, one thing I always kick back to, and, and he always talks to is about just the changing face of the workforce and how in 30 years, like something like 30% of all the jobs that are here now are going to be obsolete. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you think about the, the largest employment sector in the United States is retail, right? Um, we've already seen through this pandemic retail sales be decimated by online, which is getting faster and yeah, that's right. all the time. Um, and even the, in, even the in-person stores where retail um, jobs exist, uh, now we've got these uh, increasingly automated systems in those. 
uh, all the way from uh, from self checkout systems to um, uh, automated restocking systems. You know these these Amazon Go stores. You walk in, you scan your phone, you grab the stuff you want, and then you walk out. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's no real interaction with a human uh, unless you unless you seek that out. So imagine what's going to happen to all of those jobs. And then think about all of the people that are employed in. Uh, in something like transportation or driving jobs. Uh, and and in our lifetimes, we're likely to see the widespread proliferation and use of driverless vehicles. Like the, yep. that's going to happen yep. uh, because it's cheaper, it's safer. Uh, there's all kinds of reasons that it will happen. And so what's going to happen to all those, all those jobs um, that, that uh, employ tens of millions of people in the United States? Um, so I, I think we're... Uh, we went through a phase where we already knew the machines were taking the repetitive manufacturing jobs. Like that happened in the 1980s and 90s. That right. was already gone. Right. And when we were kids. Um, and yeah. Now it's, it's uh, reasoning like machines can think and the machines can adapt. Um, so what, now what? Um, so I, I really think it goes back to that uh, creativity, complex reasoning, problem solving, the ability to sort of see and think about the future uh, in, in, into things that machines can't do that's what we that's the world we got to start preparing our kids for. no I, I totally agree and before we jump into your idea on how we how we kind of start to move towards that um one thing COVID has really shown me is that um like if education is just for delivering content then our computers are that's what computers are for like literally a computer can do just deliver the content but what a computer cannot do is deliver those relationships cannot deliver those skills, cannot deliver those. Um, I, I might be still in your, thun your thunder, but can't deliver those competencies. Um, so if nothing else, I think COVID has shown education system that we have to change with the times. Um, so my friend, um, Dr. Glass, go ahead and let our listeners know what is your idea of how we kind of uh, how does education change? How do we become relevant? How do we become, um, I guess, important again? Yeah, well, I think it's this, you know, how we do it. Well, let me let me say this. Uh, I've I can remember talking with um, uh, being being at a, a meeting of business leaders um, at a, this big conference. All these CEOs there, and uh, they had this slide up. And they had asked um, business leaders their opinions on, on what skills uh, people entering the workforce out of schools had and didn't have. And so this the graph comes up and uh, the skills that um, business leaders say that workers largely have are basic skills, sure. like basic reading, basic writing, basic mathematical computation, like D really, really low. DOK one. Yeah, be a big percentage of the business leaders said, so seventy percent said this is not a problem. Like the student, they've got this. Uh, and then um, the next step up, where we started to see some things emerge, like what skills do they not have? It was uh, uh, data analytics, uh, engineering. So now you're getting into some com complex reasoning, right? Uh, and then the next step up were were teamwork, communication, leadership. Yeah, more, sure. More intangible. Uh, and then the, the highest response, and when asked these CEOs what were their workers missing, was critical say critical thinking, innovation, problem solving. Uh, and I was like, there it is. Yeah. You know, the 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 CEOs are telling you right there the problem that's with the workforce and, and what and what the solution is. Right. The education experience has got to shift away from basic content knowledge because they're telling you they've got that uh, and toward uh, creating these other experiences or, or creating humans that can that can innovate that can work in teams that can problem solve um and i was excited and then we go you know 20 more minutes into the presentation all of the answers were more standardized tests uh, uh, punishments let's open you know uh proliferate different like school models that basically focus on tests and punishments uh, and it was like the solution or the uh, prescription is so disconnected from the problem. Yeah. Like it yeah. was jarring to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, and I I think like that's that's the root of it is is we know uh, most people can tell you what the problem is. 
And most people can tell you what their aspirations for education are, what their aspirations for their own children are. Like we want our kids to be happy. We want them to be uh, pursue a passion, something they feel um, a good at, and, mm-hmm. and to have a uh, have uh, their basic needs met in life and and achieve the American dream. Like those are the things we want. Uh, and then and then uh, we keep going back to these solutions of we need more standardization, we need more testing, we need more punishments, and we need to thin the resources of public education. Um, or bring about like let's proliferate different school governance structures really none of that yeah none of it changes the experience that a student has on a day-to-day basis and until you change that until we do something that changes what the student experiences on a day-to-day basis that prepares them for the complex world that they're going to inherit we have done nothing to really change education. So that's the big idea, that we've got to change the student experience. It's not macro level policy. Yeah, right. It's not big sweeping state policy. Right, it's right. It's at the student level. It's what the student is experiencing. Right, right. And, and you know, the when you're talking about that, you're talking about innovation, you're talking about creativity. I think we also have to make it easier for our teachers to be able to do that. You know, because if if I have a teacher that 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 literally I tell them, do whatever you want in your room. What are you passionate about? Um, I want you to think outside of the box. Like, what is your big idea? Let's try it. Um, and then then we'll see what happens. If it doesn't work, then we can try something else. Um, and I don't know what the. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I've, I, you know, I've, I've said like what I just said to you to like a room of a thousand teachers and I get all these head nods. Yeah, that's exactly what we need to do. And then you know, after that, you know, moments over, then I walk through the crowd and they go, you know, I really, I really believe what you said. I don't know how to do that. Yeah. I don't know what that means. Like I I need somebody to show me what that is. Now, a lot of teachers do know what that means and they're already doing it. So, I mean, there are bright spots out there. You you can walk and you know, the teachers, when you walk in the room, the students are engaged there. The students are doing complex uh, tasks. The students are engaged in, in deeper learning. Uh, and the students know it. The students know that they're doing something that's meaningful. Yeah. Uh, so there, there are teachers out there who have got this figured out. But it's, it's, it's the, uh, the group in the middle that wants to be different but doesn't really know how. I think that's, that's who we've got to support. And then you've got a, you have a smaller number of teachers. <laughs> All they want to do is um, old deliver, content, deliver content in an old school way. We don't really have time for them because like, yeah. I'm not going to change their mind. I'm not right. going to move that person. So like, I'll just wait for you to retire. And, but I, I've got to get more people uh, that are moving in the direction of, of complex reasoning, deeper learning. And I think how we do that is through a focus on, uh, a focus on problem and project-based tasks. Yes, sir. Uh, and teaching, teaching teachers uh, how to, st- content still important, uh, basic facts and computation is still important, uh, but how do you take that that those kinds of things and give work to students that in, also requires them to work in a team and to collaborate and to solve a real problem uh, and to innovate? Uh, like we we can build tasks for students that require these higher order, deeper learning skills in addition to requiring just the content knowledge. So I think that's the work ahead oh, man. Is, is building on that a problem and project-based approach. I, I, I completely agree. I love PBL. Um, I actually just watched, there was an Edutopia video on YouTube that referenced a study, PBL study in an AP, psych, AP I want to see it was an AP US history course. And so they uh, took a um, a sampling of all these different high schools, AP US history, and, and whether they taught lecture style or PBL style. And they, you know, aggregated all the data, and it was just overwhelming across all demographics, across, you know, all socioeconomic levels. Um, the schools or the classrooms that did the PBL scored about 10 points higher um, on the AP test than the one that just did the lecture. Um, so I, I, I personally, I have two ideas on exactly what you're talking about. Um, first one, I'm not a big lesson plan guy. I'm really not. I just like to see some type of evidence of planning. Um, but what I would like to see is some type of a matrix um, on a lesson plan with the five C's that when the teacher is planning that lesson, they can intentionally, okay, I'm going to check off creativity. Okay, I'm going to check off 
uh, collaboration. Um, you know, we're going to do, you know, a little creativity or whatever. Um, that's my one idea. And then my other idea is what if we worked backwards? So at the, so at the high school level, we want kids to be able to do these PBL project-based learnings, but it's also going to take, in my opinion, starting at kindergarten, those soft skills, which aren't really soft, those essential skills, building those through the elementary and really focusing on those essential numeracy skills, literacy skills, um, writing, reading skills, so that when they get into middle school, then we can add the next layer, which might be, you know, whatever that is, with the end goal that when a kid enters freshman year, they've got those basics, they have those skills, they know what it looks like to work in a group. Um, they know what it feels like to um, make mistakes and to fall for fail forward. Um, but in, in, in my opinion, in order to get to that PBL model, we have to also redesign the current, well, and this is a way bigger thing, starting all the way down with kindergarten, what kindergarten looks like and that the, the um, you know, the true, I guess, equalizing nature of kindergarten, make it back to that and then work forward. So that essentially when a kid graduates our high school, they've got those skills. Right. Well, you know, we got we have educational models that are out there that that do a lot of this, that do continue forward the kinds of hands-on engaging learning that uh, we see in a lot of kindergartens. We just lose it as kids get older. I mean, Ken right. Robinson talked about that. Like kids come hardwired with curiosity oh, yeah. and risk-taking um, and wanting to learn. And then we sort of educate that out of them. Yeah. Uh, but if you look at like uh, expeditionary learning schools or yep. Montessori schools, Montessori. like that's an intentional effort uh, to try and hang on to um, those hands-on uh, engaging experiences for students. And, and I also, um, I, I really uh, applaud the work that the Buck Institute does uh, with their project-based learning gold standard because uh, it's it's sort of a planning tool that starts with uh, what is the content that students need to know. So it's still mm -hmm. standards based, uh, and then it asks asks the teacher uh, to think about, um, you know, it, yes, you start with the content, but then what's a challenging problem? Uh, how do you sustain inquiry? Right? How do we go deeper than just learning the facts? How do we make it authentic and real, connected to the student? How do we give the students some choice or agency in how they approach the problem? How do we intentionally build in an opportunities for students to reflect or think back once they try something, how, how they stop, think back and learn, critique their own work, try again, uh, and some kind of per, a public performance or demonstration where the learning is visible and real. Um, so uh, not every lesson is gonna do all of that, um, but the, the Buck Institute's uh, uh, sort of problem project-based gold standard uh, planning tool. If you use that in the in your planning, uh, you're going to hit some of those things, right? And I I guarantee the lessons are going to be more engaging, more meaningful for students if just through the planning of instructions yeah. you use that as a starting point. Sure, I'm I'm definitely gonna have to check that out. So I love your ideas. Um, I'll be honest, I am super excited to have you at the helm of education. Um, cause I really have been waiting for somebody to say that, um, maybe even just to give me the license to think like that. Um, because sometimes, sometimes it, I don't, I don't know, maybe, maybe it, it's almost faux pas to talk sometimes like that, you know? Um, but I love it because I, I completely agree with everything you have said tonight. Um, so I just want to thank you very much for thinking like that. Hey, thanks, Brian. Um, you know, I'm I'm excited about the work that's ahead. I, uh, I we've we've done engagement work in Kentucky already, just in the few months that I've been here. A lot of that's been limited because of COVID, but we've we've done it none, nonetheless. And then we've got a bunch of listening tours set up where we're going to uh, start with what we're calling empathy interview questions. Oh, cool. The, the emphasis really is on listening. So there's a few minutes of me kicking things off. Uh, and then people are broken out into smaller groups of 10, 12 people. Uh, and then we've got students asking questions like, uh, tell me about 
uh, a time that you learned something meaningful in life. It could be a school example or it could be an adult, but tell me about when you learned something meaningful. Because um, we want the stories and, and everybody's got something like that, something that connected or was important to them. And what were the conditions around that? Because I think by asking those kinds of questions, um, we get to what, what are the conditions for great learning? And then we can think about how we, how we create schools that, that uh, nurture those kinds of conditions and have those kinds of conditions. Things like uh, there's authenticity. So there's a real problem that a student is interested in, or there's a real curiosity. The student really wants to know, how does this work? How do I do this? How can I solve this problem? Uh, there's a great teacher uh, that's supporting, uh, that lets, you know, uh, steps in and gives the student support where they need to, even if that's just encouragement, but also lets them do, do the work. Uh, there's there's a, 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 that public product, right, where um, it's, it's not just the student does a quiz and the only people that see that are the teacher and the student, uh, that there's some kind of meaningful demonstration. Uh, I really think that um, you know, we've got a lot that we can learn. In addition to, I mentioned EL and, and Montessori as a couple of great ex examples, uh, but I think it, you can walk into any uh, choir, band, um, theater class, and you see great examples of problem and project hey, learning. Yeah, with for sure. Authentic demonstrations or, or uh, career technical education classes. Or if you go into a lot of uh, alternative schools, uh, you see great teachers. Big place, because yes. Because the teachers that work, the teachers that work in alternative schools know I can't stand up here and deliver it in the same old way because uh, these kids are already checked out and they're they are telling us through through their behavior and disengagement that they would need something different. And the kids are right; they do need something different. They all need something different. That's exactly right. Uh, so I think I think there are great examples of of where we could go already out there. We got to look for the bright spots. It's not about shaming everybody and saying, you've been doing it wrong. This is all an abject failure. Uh, it's about finding those um, great examples we have already in the education system, lifting them up and proliferating those great ideas. And moving together. Yeah, or at least who's willing to go. Like I said, you know, you could have some people that say, you know what, I'm not doing any of this. And I, I don't, we don't really have time to convince anybody. The world is moving too fast. Um, it's it's just uh, we got we got to shift. It's got to happen, uh, and we got we got to work on it. Absolutely. Uh, real quick, I'm gonna start to kind of start to um, wind us down. It is uh, it's about time at my house for kids to go to bed, and and uh, my wife and I share that responsibility. So that's one of my actually favorite parts of the day. I uh, read books to the kids and. Honestly, for the last six months, my girls and I have been into listening and watching Coldplay videos. Um, so every night we listen to a different one. Um, but two things that I want to brag on that Webster County High School is thinking about doing and has done. Um, this year, our amazing English department came up with the idea of a legacy project. Um, and so for the senior kind of senior project this year, we asked kids to come up with a solution to a uh, problem in the community and then they had to put it in action and then kind of implement it and then write a story and then defend it in front of us um, so that was really cool we had some amazing ideas and actually an idea from that we are hoping to implement next year and so we're wanting to make genius hour um, an elective hopefully where kids can take it twice in their high school career um, study anything and everything they want um, with the conditions that they just have to complete some type of performance um, to whoever um, along that line. So we're really excited about it because, you know, our kids, just like you said, our kids are interested in stuff. This, so let's let them, let's let them go. That's right. Yeah. Well, um, have a great evening with your, uh, with your daughters, Ryan. I'm going to go, um, uh, tell my kids good night too. So we'll we'll be on similar tasks. I really have enjoyed being on with you this evening. A great conversation, and thanks for doing this. Uh, I think the more that we could have uh, educators like you sharing stories and and bringing uh, people together to think out loud, and uh, we'll be better off. So thanks for doing this, and thanks for having me. Yeah. Before we leave, would you let my listeners know if uh, they want to get a hold of you? How can they get a hold of you? Sure. Um, I, my uh, Twitter handle is at KY Glass. 
so you can you can see some of the things that I'm up to and the department's up to on there. Uh, the best way to reach me personally is through email. So yep. it's jason.glass, G-L-A-S-S, at education.ky.gov. All right. Well, Dr. Glass, uh, Commissioner Glass, um, I sincerely, have, I know I've said that like three times, but I sincerely appreciate your time this evening. Um, I'm going to close us out with a quote. Um, I like to quote, I like to, um, excuse me, close every episode with a quote about dreaming um, for the simple fact that nothing ever changes unless someone dreams. So for tonight, the best way to make your dreams come true is to wake up. So to my friends out there in the edgesphere, thank you once again for listening to the Big Ed Idea podcast. Um, if there is anything I can never do for you, please don't hesitate to reach out. And once again, Dr. Glass, have a great evening. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you for hanging out with me here on the Big Ed Idea Podcast. My hope is that this would be a conversation, a meeting of the minds and a space for one person's vision to inspire the passions of another. However, none of this can happen without you. So let's be change agents together and build a better future. Please subscribe or reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Come to the conversation with your passion, and together, let's build something awesome. Until next time, I'll see you in the